Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, a Radio Free Europe podcast on developments in Russia, its war against Ukraine, and its relations with the rest of the world. I'm Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL, and author of The Week in Russia newsletter. This week's podcast is about the plane crash that Russia claims killed 65 Ukrainian POWs, the effort by a politician who has criticized Russia's war against Ukraine to challenge President Vladimir Putin in the upcoming election, and the conviction and sentencing of Igor Girkin, a.k.a. Strelkov. And my guest today on The Week Ahead in Russia is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Thanks very much for joining me again, Mark. Always a pleasure. All right. Great to have you on the show again. Uh, your first appearance here in 2024, I believe. Now, the first thing I want to ask about is the crash of a Russian Eel 76 military transport plane um, on January 24th in the Belgorod region, which borders Ukraine and has been targeted in some Ukrainian attacks. Now, Russia says the jet was carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners uh, headed for a prisoner exchange, and Russia claims that Ukrainian forces shot the plane down. Now, Ukraine questions uh, both of those claims. It says Russia has presented no evidence that its forces shot the plane down. Uh, and Ukraine also says that while Russia belatedly gave it a list of the POWs Moscow claims were on board, uh, the relatives were unable to identify any of the family members in images of the crash site that Moscow provided. Uh, Ukrainian officials have also suggested that if Ukraine did shoot down the plane, it is Russia that bears responsibility because Russia, they contend, do not warn Ukraine to keep the skies in, the, in that area safe, as it has done ahead of previous prisoner swaps. Mark, uh, more questions than answers at this point. Uh, what do you make of it, and do you think this crash will alter the course of the war in any way? Yes, well, the first thing that one has to say is obviously we don't really know. Uh, there's a welter of claim and counterclaim, but very little hard facts. I think it does seem a little bit questionable, to say the least, that there were indeed prisoners of war on that plane. The route doesn't seem to really coincide with what we'd expect. That particular plane had up till now largely been plying journeys to and from Syria and Iran. In other words, it seems to have been more of a weapons carrier than a people carrier. But the point is, none of this is is at all definitive. I mean, we we haven't seen really evidence of the bodies. They've shown pictures of alleged prisoners of war being put onto a plane, but this was very kind of grainy footage that could frankly have been anywhere or at any time. So, you know, the the Russian case isn't looking particularly strong. But that said, the Ukrainians don't really come out of this all that well. I mean. Caricaturing it slightly, I mean, their answer is, it wasn't us, but even if it was us, it wasn't our fault, and you haven't proved it was us anyway. 
which is a, a less than entirely sort of credible answer. I mean, it does seem quite likely that the Ukrainians did indeed shoot this plane down. And yes, there's all sorts of suggestions about whether it was some evil Russian plot in order to make the Ukrainians look bad or, or whatever else. But you know, I think the bottom line is all we can say at the moment is that this plane was downed, certainly doesn't bear any of the signs of having been mechanical failure or whatever. Although there were claims that, oh, well, it was the Russians' own air defense systems that accidentally shot it down, that hasn't been backed up. The identification friend or foe system on that plane does seem to have been working. And so instead, it is likely that the Ukrainians shot it down. Beyond that, though, I think the only thing one can say is that this is an example of the fact that in, in modern warfare, what you get is an instant uh, info shum, as the Russians would put it, info noise. There are just so many cross-cutting claims and uh, allegations and recriminations that you know, it is often very difficult to know at the time precisely what's going on. But the flip side of that is that we also live in a panopticon society where basically everything is observed, everything leaks eventually. We will know, but not quite yet. And that means is why I don't think this crash is going to alter the, the conduct of the war or the, or the outcome. Um, yes, as I say, it's, it, it, it's a bit of a hit to Ukrainian credibility, how they have responded to this. And at the same time, you know, frankly, the only people who believe what the Russians are saying are the people who are constitutionally inclined towards believing what the Russians say anyway. But this is not something that, for example, really impacts foreign assistance to, to Ukraine. This is not something that clearly has a particular traction with either the Russian or Ukrainian population. So it's just uh, an incident and maybe a tragedy of this war, uh, unfolding pretty tragic war. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would I would tend to agree with the, with the idea that um, it hasn't affected and, and it probably will not affect the, the course of the war much. Just, I'll just mention one other thing there. Um, uh, obviously, it's the second... Well, big crash, major crash. If if indeed there were dozens of of, of people aboard, um, to be linked uh, to to Russia's war against Ukraine. The the, the other one obviously was the um, the the shoot down um, in 2014 of MH17, which killed all 298 um, passengers and crew aboard that commercial jet. Um, I just wanted to point out one one kind of difference. I mean, you mentioned the info shum, the the noise. Um, I, I, to me, there seems like a, a slight difference in that uh, in that case, in the case of MH17, Russia came out, you know, at various times with with various claims, you know, uh, which were eventually um, eventually kind of refuted, uh, but but they were pretty wide ranging. In this case, Russia seems to have, um, you know formulated its narrative pretty quickly, you know, stating not long after the crash, uh, you know, that that, that um, there were 65 Ukrainian POWs aboard and that, um, and, and then I guess a little bit later, the claiming that it was shot down by Ukraine. But so, I mean, it's not a, it's not really a meaningful difference, but, but just maybe a, a, a small difference there. Well, I mean, I think the, these are two very different situations. A, in the, the, the shootdown of the MH17, which was, was clearly a, a mistake on the part of the militant separatists who had been supplied with 
Russian air defence systems, but without in a way the know-how and, and, and the backup radars to be able to know the difference between what they thought was actually a Ukrainian military aircraft and was in fact a, a civilian passenger plane. Um, but in, in this case, you know, in, in the case of MH17, it was all complicated by the fact that, that Russia at that time was firstly wanting to deny that it had actually provided this kind of military hardware to the rebels, but also was essentially trying to deny that it had any role in this ugly mix of insurgency, foreign intervention that, that was taking place in, in the Donbass. And most importantly of all, this had an international dimension. The people on board, you know, that was a Malaysian airliner. People on board were, were people from Australia, people from the Netherlands and so forth. Um, you know, there was inevitably all the more reason to try and fog the issue as far as possible with all these ludicrous claims. I mean, I, I have to re recount them. The one that always struck me the most was that, that this is actually all a provocation and that everyone on the plane was already dead and that the CIA blew it up in midair precisely to, to frame the, 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 the Russians and the rebels. I mean, you know, a lot of absolute nonsense. In this case, you know, it, it is in the context of a much more straightforward conflict. You know, Ukraine is at war with Russia. Russia is at war with Ukraine. A Russian plane has been shot down, probably by a Ukrainian missile. You can then sort of haggle over the circumstances and precisely what or who was on that plane. But you know, the essence is a lot more straightforward and a lot more, frankly, confined than with MH17, which was a true global issue. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Mark. Um, now, let's talk about Igor Girkin. I'll mention that uh, he is linked to to MH17, um, uh, another crash that that would not have occurred were Russia not attacking Ukraine. Uh, Girkin, a Russian nationalist also known as Igor Strelkov, was a key figure in the early part of the war that Russia fomented in Ukraine's Donbass region a decade ago, and he's one of two Russians convicted of murder in a Dutch court over the downing of Flight MH17. Now. Uh, which, as you mentioned, was brought down by a Russian missile um, that had been br brought to anti-Kiev forces in the Donbass. Now, Girkin uh, was tried in absentia uh, and sent sentenced to life in prison by the Dutch court. Meanwhile, though, he has become a critic of the way Putin's government has waged the war on Ukraine, and he has called per Putin uh, a person of, quote, cowardly mediocrity, unquote. Um, on January 25th, his trial in Russia ended with a conviction on a charge of making public calls for extremist activities and a four-year prison sentence. Uh, now, I'll just mention the fact that Kremlin opponents and critics of the war who are essentially on the other side of the political spectrum or not on it at all uh, have in several cases received much longer sentences eight years, nine years, 25 years in prison in the case of Vladimir Karamurza, uh, convicted on a treason charge widely seen as politically motivated. On the other hand, um, I'd say that for some, it appeared that Girkin, uh, appeared for some time that Girkin might not be punished for his public criticism of Putin uh, and the way that the war has been pursued. Mark, I'd be interested in your comments on this case. Is the Kremlin sending signals? Uh, and if so, what kind and, and to whom? Yeah, I mean, if we start with the issue of the different sentences, I mean, obviously, it, it is very clear that this is different from the treatment meted out to Alexei Navalny as well as uh, Vladimir Karamurza. But also, I think in some ways, one, ha one has to recognize it's not just simply a question of where they come from on the political spectrum. 
it's also a question of what they were doing. I mean, Navalny and Karim Murza were all very explicitly involved in setting up movements to challenge and bring down the regime in a way that Girkin, despite the fact his involvement in the Club of Angry Patriots and such like, was not. So I think there is a differentiation also in, in, in the nature of the, of the offence. But primarily it is about the fact that the Kremlin, I think, is still uncertain quite what to do with the more critical turbo patriots. And my view is precisely that they represent an increasing problem for the Kremlin, because firstly, they, they can't be characterized simply as uh, foreign agents and people who just simply want to impose an external model on the country. I mean, they are in many ways outflanking the Kremlin in their, their nationalism. You know, and their view on the whole is, certainly if one takes Girkin, it's not that he had any kind of a moral problem with invading Ukraine. His problem with was precisely with the fact of how it was being done, that it was being done with not enough resolution, with, with too much amateurishness, incompetence and corruption. And certainly of those last ones, it, it, it's hard to disagree with him. But the interesting thing is precisely how these turbo patriots have evolved. I mean, you know, one looks back, you take Girkin himself in, in 2014, even after he had just been essentially removed by the Kremlin from the position as the so-called defense minister of the, the, the two rebel pseudo-states in the Donbass. Nonetheless, you know, he was then calling for an elimination of the liberal elites, which is exactly the kind of line which, frankly, a lot of these days Putin's partisans are saying. 2016, he was a you know, key figure within the Russian national movement. And there he was actually already, in many ways, coming under the influence of people who are rather more thoughtful nationalists, people like Konstantin Krylov, who actually were saying that the real problem that, that Russia faces is precisely that it is in the control of one man with no checks and balances whose instincts are not right. And you know, the irony is that we actually saw ultra-nationalists edging towards a position which was quite similar to, to the reformists. They were saying, look, actually what you need is an independent judiciary and checks and balances and, and such like. And, I mean, Strokov himself you know, supported a platform calling for an end to the current climate of fear and the intimidation of Russian citizens. So, you know, what, what's interesting is that it's Girkin's danger for the Kremlin was on the one hand that he represented a particular strand of political opinion, which really was becoming exasperated. Secondly, that this strand of political opinion is disproportionately influential within the security apparatus of the military. I mean, in, in, in sheer terms of numbers, the kind of people who were backing his club of angry patriots and the like were not that huge. But the point is, when so many of them seem to be within, if not the military, but also the National Guard, the Federal Security Service and the like, you know, from the Kremlin's point of view, it has to be a, a bit more careful about how it deals with it. And that's why I think Girkin was, was kept on a much, much longer leash than most. But the thing was, I mean, A, he was actually a fairly, um, I think it's fair to say, incisive commentator on the, the weaknesses of, of the Russian military campaign in Ukraine. But perhaps more of the point, he had discovered to himself a, an unexpected talent as a kind of nationalist satirist of the regime. And various terms for Putin and Shoigu and the like, you know, calling Shoigu, for example, the, the plywood marshal, had 
become memes and actually had become much, much more widely circulated. So I think, you know, for all those reasons, he was an increasing irritant. And the striking thing is, of course, that it, it was after the Prigozhin mutiny that finally they decided that enough was enough and Girkin had to be dealt with. And I think what that represents is in some ways the Kremlin deciding, now that's enough. It, no more dramaturgia, no more pretense that there is still any kind of meaningful scope for opposition, even the most patriotic opposition. We need to just basically clear the decks. And so just as we, we, we see a continuing suppression of liberal opposition to Putin, there was also that sense of we're, we're going to deal, deal with Girkin as a message that now there's no more scope, even on the turbo patriot side, for opposition to Putin. And yes, many actually have become a lot more quiet since Girkin's arrest. I think they themselves had assumed up to that point, well, given that we're on the nationalist side, we're safe. But there is a, a real concern, and this is the last point I want to make here, is that when you actually suppress these people, what that means is, do you, do you stop their critiques? No, of course not. But you drive them underground. You actually make them feel increasingly that the state is their enemy. And so I think that, you know, again, it, it, it shows the, the increasing crudity, frankly, of, of the Putin system. The fact that, you know, its attempts to, to manage political opinion have now been replaced by attempts simply to suppress. And it's very hard to see how it can possibly go back from that. Thanks. Some great points there, especially the last one, I'd say. Um, uh, you know, I guess the, the Kremlin kind of giving up on any any idea that it could maybe, you know, work with these people or somehow benefit from from these views and just okay, we're gonna we're gonna suppress that uh, as well. Um, and and I like your description of of Girkin essentially as as a satirist, you know, who who's part of his danger to the Kremlin is that he he came up with uh with, you know with with catchy uh catchy um criticisms and, and, and words um for for uh putin and the government uh, shoigu the plywood marshal uh so you know sort of the his danger as as a meme maker um so thanks very much for that um and uh let's uh move on uh this is another kind of uh let's, let's move on to boris uh, nadezhdin whose presidential bid uh, has made waves, with hundreds of thousands, I believe, of Russians lining up um, uh, in recent days and, and a couple weeks to, to gather the signatures needed uh, to get him on the ballot for Russia's March 15th to 17th presidential election. In his campaign manifesto, uh, Nadezhdin says that Putin made a, quote, fatal mistake when he launched the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and Nadezhdin calls himself a, quote, fundamental opponent of the policies of Putin, who he says is dragging Russia into the past. And for many Russians um, who oppose the war in Ukraine or want to see Putin out of power after a quarter century, uh, Nadezhdin seems to represent a perhaps unexpected glimmer of hope uh, not hope that Putin could lose this election. I, I think the state has so many ways of ensuring uh, that would that won't happen, um, but perhaps hope that their voices will will be heard. Um, Mark, a number of analysts believe Nadezhdin's campaign is or was initially what's called a Kremlin project, 
um, or at least was was kind of supported um, by at least some factions in the Kremlin, but that it has kind of gone out of control. In any case, at this point, it does look like uh, a problem, a dilemma for Putin. Um, I'll try to focus my questions. How, how big a deal is this? And, and will Nadezhdin's name be on the ballot in March? And I'm just going to add, um, uh, is there any... Is there any thought that um, that Putin and the Kremlin may be maybe looking uh, learning a lesson from the Belarusian election in 2020 when um, a uh, a candidate who turned out to to pose a very serious challenge to Lukashenko was was on the ballot um, and. You know, many believe she she actually uh, won the election and received more votes. Um, there were huge protests uh, that followed uh, when when Lukashenko claimed a landslide victory, and the, and those those protests were quickly um, followed by by a, a massive clampdown that continues to this day. So I guess the question is: is the there are obviously many many differences in these situations, um, but is the Kremlin looking at that and saying, "Well, let's not let her on the"? Uh, I'm sorry, let Nadezhdin on the ballot. A lot of interesting questions there. I mean, if we start with Nadezhdin himself, I think it's quite interesting just how how careful he has been. I mean, although sometimes his his rhetoric has been bizarre. Remember, this is a man who often appears on Russian state TV as the kind of token liberal to be shouted at, but also sometimes has expressed some rather bizarre views of his own. I think the fact that um, the claim that American Indians are Russians is one that I, I shall continue to treasure. Um, but likewise, the, his capacity to work inside the system, even while expressing critical views, and remember, you know, he actually said on, on, on TV that, that Putin should go. But when one looks at his rhetoric about the war, he precisely says that he's a fundamental opponent. He says it's a mistake, but he doesn't actually, for example, articulate this as a moral critique. He doesn't say it's wrong because one shouldn't do this to Ukraine. It's wrong because of the terrible treatment being meted out to Ukrainians or whatever. It's more on a, a pragmatic basis. So I think this shows someone who for some time has, and I don't for a moment question the genuineness of his reformist and liberal beliefs, Though he's, I would say, particularly he's more of an economic liberal than anything else, you know. But nonetheless, you know, he has opted for a very different strategy from, say, someone like Navalny, um, who actually, you know, clearly presented himself as a full-throated opponent, not just of the regime, but everything the regime stands for. Now, in that context, I am not convinced that he is a, a so-called Kremlin project. It's interesting. Last night, I was talking about this with a. You know, a very astute and well-informed observer of Russian politics, whose view was absolutely that, that Nadezhdin was. I think it's something slightly different. I think it's not that the Kremlin set Nadezhdin up to be the, the token liberal candidate. That seems to be the, the role reserved for the deep, young, charismatic head of the, the New People Party. I think it's more that the Kremlin decided to let him go ahead and probably that precisely he at some point talked to his curators, his contacts, whatever. Um, and it was decided that, look, he was sufficiently, shall we say, respectful of the system and the game. He was sufficiently marginal that they didn't feel that they needed to exclude him at an earlier stage. 
However, I suspect they are now reviewing that decision. You know, we've seen the scenes of the, the lines of people wanting to add their signatures to, to his uh, you know, nomination documentation and such like. The fact is, he clearly has become something of a lightning rod for people who just simply either are opposed to the war, often on in more sweeping terms than the Nigerian himself, or just generally are opposed to the regime and frankly don't really care what Nigerian stands for, who he is or whatever. They just regard him as the best option for, if not necessarily toppling this regime, I don't know if there's that much. I mean, given the roots of, of Nigerian's name are in Nigeria hope, I'm not quite sure if there's that kind of hope, but just at least just to be able to express an opinion. There is this long dissident tradition within Russia that you know, even if you can't actually change the system, you can at least indicate not in my name. And I think that's that's making him more problematic. It could be that they plan to let him stand and then will essentially bury him. They'll you know, give him like I don't know, one, two, whatever percent of the vote. And then they'll use that as proof. A, we are, of course, democratic. We even allow critics onto the ballot. But that clearly the Russian people have rejected this. That is a higher risk strategy. And I'm not convinced at the moment that the presidential administration and Putin are in a risk taking mood. And again, we go back to this point I made with, with Girkin about the end of the, the age of dramaturgia, the end of the age of sort of fake oppositional politics. You know, if one looks at what is happening, I think this is very much an election that they are trying to set up as a there is no alternative election. And to allow Nadezhdin to not just be on the ballot, but as a result of that, to be able to have national debates, to, to be able to make a, a credible claim to, to having his, his words reported in, in the national newspapers. And it's worth noting, you look at obviously TV news, but also you know the main newspapers. There's very, very little coverage of Nadezhdin. You know, it would be hard to sustain that. If, you, if the whole point of having Nadezhdin is to present the facsimile of a proper election. So I think it's more likely that however careful Nadezhdin's people are, however many more um, signatures they get than they need, in due course, the Central Electoral Commission will say that there's been irregularities and will not allow him to be on the ballot. I think they, they, they will regard that as a safer option, having already, you know, while already kicking themselves for having let him get as far as this, it would have been a lot easier to have excluded in an early stage. But, sort of final point to bring, you know, obviously the sort of parallel with, with, with Belarus, again, the Belarus example is another sort of cautionary tale why you don't want to run the risk of putting him on, on the ballot. Because even if he genuinely only gets, I don't know, 5% of the vote, and probably he'd get more, but even so, a lot of people would believe that that was uh, an understatement precisely massaged by the Kremlin. And I think the very fact that so many people have been sort of queuing up to, to, to sign his case to be brought onto the ballot, it shows the depth of the protest potential in Russia. It shows the degree to which, and this is something that's been around for, for years, but I think has only been accelerated and exacerbated by the war, that there is a, a kind of hidden potential coalition of the fed up. 
people who have all kinds of different grudges with the status quo, whether it's because they just think Putin has been around for too long, or whether it's because they're angry because in real terms their, their quality of life is getting worse, whether it's because their brother or their husband didn't come back from the war, or because they're afraid that they're going to be mobilized, or you know, one, one can go on. But the point is, people who have their own specific critiques who at the moment don't think it's really worth doing anything about it because they live in a brutal authoritarian regime where if you go out and protest, you're going to get truncheoned down by the Amon riot police or whatever. But that when they have the option to express their disaffection, they are very happy to take it. And from that potentially could come a, a political movement. And if even if there doesn't come a political movement, it is a sign of a significant fraction of Russians who are opposed to the regime. And remember, the whole point of these elections is to be a legitimating ritual, is to suggest that there is this great groundswell of opinion behind Putin and the regime, and that those people who have their critiques should just shut the hell up, because they're clearly you know, very much in a small and despised minority. So I think in this context, they're not likely to, to, to let him onto the ballot. And the interesting thing is not that he will raise protests in 150 different Russian cities. Now, I suspect that is brave talk rather than something we're likely to see. But the very fact that he raises that spectre, actually, I imagine because of the Belarus parallel, makes it all the more likely that they won't let him go ahead. Unless, look, this is all some kind of clever information operation and they're, you know, they're going to sort of manage it until in the last minute he'll say, actually, I've thought about it and Putin is, is lovely and everyone should vote for him. I don't actually imagine it's going to happen. But, you know, barring that kind of scenario, I think the very moment that Najeshdin raises the prospect of wanting to organise protests presumably trying to effectively blackmail the Kremlin to letting him onto the ballot. But my suspicion is that the impact is going to be quite the opposite, that just the sheer prospect of potential demonstrations, given the, the shadow of Belarus 2020, is going to convince them, actually, we need to marginalise and silence this man as quickly as possible. And it's interesting that already we're getting calls that he should be labelled a foreign agent and the like. You know, I think there are already people who are saying, we need to stop this man. We need to stop him now, and we need to bury him deep. Right. Thanks very much, Mark. So, um, uh, amazing, amazing uh, insights there. Um, although I guess I'm not going to be adding much, but we'll just kind of go through a couple of things. Um, you know, you you mentioned it, it's funny that you mentioned the 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 possibility. I guess a remote possibility that, like, in the end, he could essentially turn out to be another pro-Putin candidate. I don't think that should be entirely ruled out. Um, you know, I think there's some scenario in which that, that could could happen uh, for various reasons, but but as you say, probably unlikely. Um, and just the, the, the Belarus uh, kind of lesson, um, you know, you mentioned it seems like the only reason the Kremlin would, would want or be interested in having him on the ballot is to then have him receive a small percentage of votes and reinforce the, the claim that, okay, there's no alternative and nobody wants an alternative uh, to Putin. Um, so, yes, that could be um, what the what the Kremlin wants to do. But as you as you say, you know, th 
there are going to be plenty of people who who won't believe that. Nobody in the West will believe it, um, and many Russians won't. Um, and the lines, as the the huge crowds in Belarus in support of Tsikhanouska were kind of proof that um, amounted to proof that Lukashenko's claim of a landslide victory had to be completely false. I mean, these lines obviously aren't aren't as big uh, for Nadezhdin as as those as those uh, rallies in Belarus, but Nevertheless, they show that there are crowds of people who are coming out, you know, actively to vote for somebody who is challenging Putin. So it does seem like um, the, you know, on balance, uh, the Kremlin might might uh, might um, go ahead and, and, and keep him off the ballot. And, and you know, you, you mentioned uh this call, I think, by somebody who's been used before, I believe, by the state to to you know generate claims against Kremlin opponents, uh, calling for him to to for Nadezhdin to be labeled uh, a foreign agent, and so there are other ways. I, I, the the co- January thirty first um, tomorrow is the deadline for submitting signatures, I believe, for candidates, and then the. the Election Commission has some time to approve or 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 not approve those, but there are also other ways uh, that 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 he could be kept from the ballot. So we'll we'll see what happens um, in in the coming uh, I guess days and, and weeks. Yeah, I mean, just to make a couple of points in response. I mean, yes, he, he could turn out that he will he will become a, a cheerleader for Putin instead, although perhaps um, with with strange and unexplained bruises and standing next to a conspicuously open window. Um, but, but I think the interesting thing is the degree to which actually, if that was the plan, how far he is already boxing himself away from being able to say that credibly. Um, you know, it's not like the, the ridiculous, grotesque spectacle of people like the communist candidate Nikolai Kharitonov, who actually pledged in advance that he would not criticize Putin in his campaign. I mean, for heaven's sake, then, then, then what is what is the point? Um, you know, I, I think, again, it's it's a high risk strategy to try and turn Nadezhdin and have him sort of Scooby-Doo style rip off his mask, because precisely, I think more people would end up feeling betrayed and angered by that than, than anything else. And I think it goes back to the fact that you know, it, it's it's been a long term concern about the Kremlin. This this coalition of the fed up. I mean, this is what, actually what I think made Navalny cross the, the line as far as they were concerned. The point at which he moved from being the tribune of the metropolitan Moscow middle class into actually trying to build a national movement, reach out and collect together a whole variety of grievances so that industrial unrest, so that political protests, environmental issues, you know, all of those could come under the umbrella of his movement. That's what made him dangerous. And that's what meant that he had to be, well, obviously, first poisoned, then imprisoned. In, in so I, I, th- I think in, in that context, I agree that I, that I think that if, if we see Nadezhdin on the ballot, it says actually that either the Kremlin has decided to take risks that I'm not convinced it would, or that they, they have established a game plan that they're pretty certain is going to work out, which means that they have ensured, arranged, agreed, or whatever, that Nadezhdin is going to either self-destruct or in some crucial ways turn. 
So, yeah, in the next couple of days, we'll, we'll find out. But um, again, if, if, if he's there on the ballot, things become a lot more interesting and a lot more potentially dangerous. All right. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, again, great points. Um, and once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. This has been The Week Ahead in Russia. Our theme music is Nyestrelai, or Don't Shoot, a song from the early 1980s by Yuri Shevchuk and DDT. Please be sure to check out my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which covers the latest developments in Russian politics and society, as well as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Subscribe by visiting www.rferl.org.